How about now? Is that a little better? Okay. All the buttons got switched. Okay. Who used this last? Hi. <laughs> if you have not already turned in your Bibles, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Second Peter, and we are working our way through uh, this first uh, these first opening verses, verses one through four. And before you get too comfortable, I invite you to stand to be blessed by the hearing of these words. Some of you are memorizing these words. I'm going slow enough so that you can get it all memorized. Uh, the rest of you, you're hearing it enough so that you should have it memorized. But here we go, Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. We live in a world of competition. We are under the constant barrage of competing ideas, competing voices, competing influences, competing ideologies, and even competing theologies. Scripture is clear that humanity in general has no less than three sources of influence. There are three things that will seek to influence your heart and your mind. What are those three sources? Well, we have the world. What is the world? All the ideas and all the trends promoted by a culture, all that the world thinks is cool, all that the world thinks is right. We have the world system that seeks to influence who you are and what you think. We have the flesh. That's ourselves. How many of you have ever talked to yourself? Do you hear your voice? You know, that's the flesh. Your flesh, that internal voice that processes what you hear and what you think and then what you will act upon. There's another source that the scripture says will seek to influence you, not only the world and not only yourself as you try to talk to yourself and work yourself through something, but the devil also has an influence. The devil is the one who is hell-bent to discourage and dissuade anything that would draw someone closer to the truth of God and his will. Now, sometimes those three influences work together, allowing a person to justify wrongly their thinking or their participation in some sin. If you're listening to the world, if you're listening to the devil, and then you're listening to your flesh, you will never please God. It is impossible to please God by listening to those sources of influence. Sometimes those influences can compete against one another and they'll cause a tension where you may say in your, your heart or mind, you say to yourself, that's wrong, I can't do that. But everybody else, the world's telling you, no, you should do that. So we have this competition going. One thing is for certain. One thing is for certain. That the mind set on the flesh, and by flesh we mean that, that's a metaphoric way of saying a mind that is under the influence, that is not under the influence of the Spirit of God. The flesh is a mind that is not swayed or influenced by the Spirit of God, but swayed and pulled, sometimes tossed and turned by the input of the world and the devil, is absolutely incapable of pleasing God. Romans chapter 8 verses 7 and 8 actually tells us that if your mind is set on the flesh, you cannot please God. That's a scary thought, that I can't even trust what's going on in my own head. This is humanity in general. But praise God, that's not the only, these aren't the only influences. There's yet another influence, one that's promised by God to those who believe upon the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. 
And that is the promise of the indwelling Spirit of God who speaks to us. Upon believing Jesus Christ by by being born again, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within the believer, the scripture says, becoming to him or her, according to the word of God, the voice of truth, the voice of truth. Jesus clearly speaks of the Holy Spirit's role in the life of the believer in John 14, verses 16 through 17, where Jesus said, I will ask of the Father, and he will give you another helper. Remember, Jesus is telling his disciples he's about to depart. They're, they're distraught. What are we going to do without Jesus? That's a good question you ought to ask anyways, right? What will you do without Jesus? These men knew that they were in trouble if Jesus left. And Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Jesus said, I'm leaving, but I have one coming who will be with you forever. And then he calls him what? The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides, he dwells with you. He's by your side. But not only is he with you, Jesus says, he will be where? In you. The spirit of God will accomplish something that Jesus Christ didn't. And that is Jesus was Emmanuel, God, with us, while the Holy Spirit will become God in us when we have faith. As glorious and wondrous as the incarnation of Christ is, that moment when the second person of the Trinity, indeed God, a very God, took on flesh and dwelt among his creation, thus given the name Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus promises here something of equally great wonder, the coming of the third person of the Trinity, indeed God, a very God, not only who now dwells or abides with us, but dwells in us. Why is this important? Well, consider with me the words of Romans 8, verses 11 through 14. The Apostle Paul writes, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells where? In you. He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells where? In you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, that influence of the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God These are the sons of God. What's influencing you today? What voices are you listening to in this sea, this cacophony of voices that seek to influence you? Believers have the blessing of the influence of the Holy Spirit who dwells within them. And so we say with Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk, let us behave or follow after the spirit our lives should be reflecting something completely different from the world completely different from the flesh and certainly different from the devil as we work our way through out of peter's salutation as found in verses 1 and 2 we cannot escape the the emphasis and really the weighty truths already presented In the opening two verses, consider with me, Peter has already used the name of Jesus three times. In two verses, it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He refers to him twice as Christ, the anointed, the chosen one of God. He's referred to as Lord once, and he's also referred to as our God and Savior. There can be no doubt that Peter has a preoccupation, and he's preoccupied with the person of Christ. What are you preoccupied with? The voice that Peter wants to hear is the voice of Christ that comes through the spirit of Christ. There can be no doubt. And if we need to ask why this would be, we find Peter is eager to remind his readers as he opens this letter of all the priceless priceless treasures that are at stake in their conflict with false teachers. If you're going to do battle with false teachers, if you're going to be able to stand against their influences and their voices, then the one thing you need to know better than anything else is the work and the person of Jesus Christ, our God, 
and our Savior. If believers fail to remember how spiritually wealthy we are through sloth or neglect, we will have much to lose. And so to combat this, Peter unleashes, uh, literally unleashes a barrage of spiritual truths that are intended to, to cause our hearts and minds to come back to the wondrous grace of who God is and what God has done by himself and for himself, granting an equally powerful saving faith to all who look to the righteousness of Christ for salvation. Peter prays in verse 2 that the obedience-enabling grace of God and the confidence-building peace of God, that, that recognition that we are no longer at war with God if we are in Christ, that these things, that these things will be increasing and abundantly evident in our lives. In other words, if we ever fail to live out this life of Christianity, according to verse 1, if we are ever going to live out this life of Christianity, where does it all begin? It begins with faith. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you come to the place where you recognize he's not simply an historical figure? He is God, a very God, who has become man. He is one who has walked this earth, who lived in perfect obedience to God the Father, who died the death you should have died upon the cross, who spilt his blood so that you may be forgiven. Have you come by faith to believe in the work and person of Jesus Christ? It is a faith that we learned is received, not by our own efforts. It is through the benevolence of God, through the grace of God, by the mercy of God. In addition to this faith, we see in verse 2 that believers need the constant and increasing inflow of grace and peace, which is found in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. How do you grow in grace? How do you understand peace more? Read this book, and you will have grace and peace multiplied to you. But the gifts of grace and faith and peace and knowledge are just the tip of the proverbial iceberg. We could read these first two verses and go, wow, this is great. Now let's move on. And Peter's not done. I've been overwhelmed with where, how deep Peter seeks to go. This morning, we consider yet another of these gracious gifts, which have the, this next gift has the potential to blow our mind as well and to humble us to the core. And why do we need that? Because, beloved, we need to look to Christ as Peter was looking to Christ. So, we've been looking at the gracious gifts that lead to godliness. If you desire godliness, you must believe. You must receive the gift of faith. If you are going to be godly, you must have the gift of grace and peace that comes through the knowledge of Christ. And now this morning, if we would be godly, we need the gift of everything. We need everything pertaining to life and godliness for Christ. So let us consider this next gracious gift granted to us who believe so that we might grow in the grace and knowledge and the practice of Jesus Christ. And that is the gift of everything pertaining to life and godliness. Look at verse 3 once again. This is where we will camp this morning. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and his and excellence. These are words that describe the depth and wonder of what God has done for us. If you would just pause for a moment and in your own mind, I'm not going to be silent enough for you to do this well. But if you just took each one of those phrases, there is a sermon in each one of those statements. This is not just some, some thrown together ideas. This is truly an expression of the theology of Peter. So many truths to explore here, the greatest of which is this, that God, by his purpose, has granted to us everything we need to live out our spiritual life in Christ in a way that is pleasing to him. It is a reminder that you cannot do this on your own. It is a reminder that we need God in our life. We need his provisions if we would live a life, uh, live this life of godliness. Beloved, what I submit to you here 
is not simply the sufficiency of Scripture. We speak of saying Scripture is sufficient. It covers everything a person needs to know about God, about sin, about Christ, about salvation. That is true. It is sufficient. It does not need any help. But I submit to you as well that what's being presented to us this morning is the sufficiency of the working of God in your life to produce spiritual life and godliness. That unless you are looking to God, unless you've received this gift of everything, you will not live out spiritual life and you will not be godly. We have, not, we have it not in ourselves. The way Peter originally wrote this verse makes for a very awkward reading in the English. And so I like to be awkward, so I'm going to uh, put it up on the screen so that you can see how Peter actually pinned it originally. And so, I think if we can go to the next screen, it should be coming up there. That's the original. It should come up. There we go. This is the way Peter writes it in the Greek. It's the English translation, okay? Word-for-word translation. As all things to us, his divine power, the things pertaining to life and godliness, he has granted. How's that for good English, right? That's well English. What does that tell us? Well, in Greek, when somebody puts something at the front of the, the sentence, it was in the place of emphasis. It's what he's seeking to emphasize. It's the main truth he wants to convey. And what does he put at the front? He puts all things, everything. He places that in the emphatic position, meaning he's stressing this point. All things, everything necessary, the full provision, the complete sufficiency of resources so that you might rightly live out this life of Christianity is now granted. And then it reads that all things are to us. And I love this. It's still in the emphatic position. God's going to talk about all things. We're going to look at this in just a moment. But it's all things to us. Who's the the us? To believers. To those who have received the same kind of faith as every other believer in Christ. All things to us. You have the total package. How many of you have ever had a salesman come? And he says to you, here's here's the the package. uh, What do they say? Here's the bronze package, right? And it's got all of these things. But if you'll go just a little bit more, you can have the silver package. And then he'll go, if you go just a little bit more, we have the gold package. And now today, gold's not the highest. If you want it all, if you want the whole enchilada, we're going to give you the platinum package. It's everything you could ever conceive of. You will be able to do anything and everything, anywhere at any time with this particular package. Peter says, you've got even beyond the platinum package here. Everything you could ever think of that is necessary to live out spiritual life and to be godly has been granted to you in Jesus Christ. This is, this is the gift of God. This gives security to the believer. It's not about me. It's about God. It gives confidence to the believer. And it brings well-being, that sense of peace, to the believer. All things necessary to resist the assaults and deceptions of false teachers. All things necessary to discern good from the bad, from the voices in our head, from the voices in this world, from the, the voice of the devil. This is all to us. It's for us. It is yours. And the price is right. Because it's from the blood of Christ who paid it all. This is our privilege. This is our possession. This is to become our practice. Well, in addition to the sufficiency of everything, and we'll flesh that out a little bit more, let us note next the source of all things or everything necessary. Where does it come from? Well, Peter tells us it's by his divine power, his Dunamis, power is dunamis, is dynamite, the divine dynamite that blows things up, changes everything. In context, this, this his refers to Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is our God and Savior. Notice that it is specifically not just power, but divine power. 
as opposed to what? What would be the opposite of divine power? Human power. What am I trying to convey to you? What is the Spirit teaching us? This is not about you. It's about God. Quit thinking this is about you and let God do his work. It is supernatural and not natural. It is an unlimited power, not limited, that the source of the gift of all things is by means of Christ's divine power points to the efficacy. This is going to be done. There's no stopping it. Who can thwart the hand of God? This is the confidence we have that God has granted to me. He has granted to you if you are in Christ. You will not be a second-class citizen. You are not something less. You have everything at your disposal to live this life for Christ. So we'll have to talk about the implications and the applications of that in just a moment. Why, when we speak of of the efficacy of this this power, it means that it really works. All the, the false teachers offer will come up short. All that they teach will lead to destruction of the soul. But what Christ offers will succeed. I am confident in this very thing that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion. That's Peter here saying, all things necessary for life and godliness is yours in Christ. Beloved, we see so many who long or say they long for more of God in their lives. You ever seen the people who say, I just wish I knew God better, but then they don't do anything. There's so many people who say, I want more of God. They listen to the voices and the influences out there rather than the one of the book. They read book after book. They listen to sermon after sermon. They bounce from teacher to teacher. They hop from church to church seeking for something that they think will help them in this life when the word of God says the only thing that will help you in this life is found in the power of Christ who has granted to you all that you need. There are those who go to church for an experience. They want a sign, a wonder, rather than look to the word of God. There are those to go, who go to church for the music. This church offers a rock band experience. I got to go there. This church has this huge choir. I need to go there. There are those who think the repetition of liturgy is the key, the recitation of catechisms and, and confessions. There are those who seek large crowds because it must mean God is present. There are those who seek small crowds because that must mean God is present. There are those who look to conferences as the key to life and godliness. Beloved, some of these things may well contribute to life and godliness. Some of them may actually hinder life and godliness. But everything necessary is not found in them. It's found in your knowledge of Christ. It is not out there. It is in him. So long as we are looking elsewhere rather than Christ, we miss it altogether, failing to realize that all the resources and all the power that we will ever need to live this life of godliness has been given to us by Christ in Christ alone. If you are in Christ, you have everything, all things necessary. You lack nothing, and it's all here in this book. We have but to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Many years ago, there was a song that came out with the line, some of you might know this, the Maranatha days, right? Just like 40 years ago now. More love, more power, more of you in my life. More love, more power, more of you in my life. And while I would say the sentiment of wanting to experience more of God might be right, The reality is that by faith in Christ, God is in our life and has given to us everything we need. In this sense, there's no more love for him to offer. He's given it all in Christ. There's no more power for him to offer. He's given it all to you in Christ. We do not need more of God in our lives in the sense that the Holy Spirit already dwells within us. We have everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, some of us among us have been blessed to come from 
families of means. We've had the, the, those who've had everything, right? The, you, you grew up with some friend that had the latest technology and always had the best clothes, the, the designer clothes. And when they turned 16, their parents bought them a car instead of getting a hand-me-down uh, little VW bug that uh, had to be rebuilt and all of that stuff. Um, I'm not bitter. No, you know. They're the ones that always went out to the fancy restaurants, and, and when they said, hey, do you want to come to dinner with me? You're like, yeah, I want to go. I, they they seem to have everything. But get this. For those who are in Christ, for those who have the same faith as Peter and those who have believed and are born again, we are the rich kids now. You and I in Christ are the rich kids we should be so delighted with what we have and so demonstrative and generous with what we have that other people want to say, I want to be with them. They've got everything. They've got it all. The problem is we fail to understand the riches that we have in Christ. We stop ourselves short. How rich are we in Christ? How much is ours? How would you measure it? I love the statement by the Apostle Paul concerning one of his aims in preaching. In Ephesians 3.8, he says this. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace, this enabling power, was given to preach to the Gentiles what? The unfathomable, I can't even say it, unfathomable riches of Christ. How many times do you just gloss over that word? What does that mean, the unfathomable, the unending, the boundless, the incalculable, the limitless riches, the wealth beyond human comprehension? Paul says, all I want to do is preach to others the wonders of everything that belongs to us if we believed in Christ. And if that was good enough for Paul, it should be good enough for us. I have a hard time wrapping my head around the national debt of the United States. It currently stands at $31 trillion. There's a, a, a website you can go, and it's actually frightening because it just shows you the debts, this, it's called a debt clock, and it's frightening. It just, it, in, in like five seconds, it's done more than I've made in my entire lifetime, right? So what is $31 trillion? Try to put your head around that. Well, I did a little bit of calculating. That's $100,000 for every man, woman, and child in the U.S., or about $250,000 for every taxpayer in the U.S. So if we all in this room, along with everyone else in the nation, would cough up $100,000 per person, we could pay off this debt. And, and while that seems astronomical, I could actually get my head around that a little bit more. I mean, $100,000, I've bought a home that's more than $100,000. I can, I can fathom that to a, a certain extent, even though they're huge numbers, I can calculate it out. But according to scripture, the riches of Christ are incalculable. I can't put a number to it. And now Peter comes along and says, everything, everything, all things that you need are yours to live out this life of godliness. Consider how this is expressed in Ephesians 1, 17 through 19, where we read that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. How rich are we? Are we living like it? Beloved, the issue is not that we do not have what is necessary to live the godly life. I, su I would submit, uh, I, I would imagine that all of us are in the same boat. We know at one level we have everything to live the godly life. We also know something else. We don't always live the godly life. The issue is we fail to grasp then the depth of the riches we have as believers. Our problem is not 
uh, our problem is that we can too often look for spiritual help then. How do I succeed in living this life for Christ? We look in every place other than the only place that is said to be ours. So what must we do? We must look and see. Notice even our NASB translation has it, seeing that everything is ours. See it. Start looking for it. Start spending time in the word of God, exploring all the things that are yours. Here is an application for you this week. If you're coming on Thursday night, and you can do it if you don't come on Thursday nights as well. Start writing out all the things that are yours because you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Start making that list. See if you come to the end of it. Share it with us on Thursday night. Help us to be overwhelmed at the grace of God. Let me make one more comment about this divine power, and that is uh, uh, as the source of everything we need. Again, notice the adjective divine. This is describing the kind of power. It's his, Christ's divine power. We have already noted how Peter has been set to demonstrate the divinity of Christ, that Jesus is, as he's already said, our God and Savior. And here it is again, the deity of Jesus Christ is the foundation of the entire letter. If we don't get this right, if we don't come to grips with the fact that Jesus is God, if we devoid this letter of Christ's divinity, if we make him less than God, then the foundation of this letter becomes a jumbled ruin and we have nothing to stand on and we will fall prey to every false teacher. We will be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Everything pertaining, everything necessary, everything requisite, everything required for life and godliness comes from one source, the divine source, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Well, how do I access that? Well, we've been talking about that. We must know him more. You must know him better. But let's move on to the next aspect of this. We've seen our sufficiency. We have it all. The source is from Jesus, our God and Savior. Now let's look at our standing. And what is this life and godliness? It's actually our standing before God. It's not just something we do. It's something we are. With Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, when he wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us, again, what he's done, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We note there, we, we note that this is a life that has been granted to us. This life stands in contrast to being dead in your trespasses and sins. The idea of godliness used four times in this letter literally means the action of worshiping or living well to God. Godliness is the action, the whole, the whole process, everything of worshiping and living well to God. How are you worshiping God? How are you living for God? It is an expression of one's devotion to the Lord. Beloved, even these life and godliness they're said to be gifts from the Lord, gifts that flow from where? The source, the divine power. They're part of this all things that God has given to us. Now, the hard word here is that such spiritual life, that spiritual life being born again and godly living, this devoted living, are not native to your heart or mind. You do not desire in your flesh to have spiritual life or to live a life that pleases to God, that live a life that pleases God. If we don't get that, we're going to go searching for ways to do that any, any other way than to look to the source. And that's the hard word. We cannot manufacture it. And so we come to the verb now, the action, all, that is, all of this that is granted, it is all granted or given to us who believe. Do you see that? All, as all things to us, his divine power, things pertaining to spiritual life and pleasing, a pleasing life to him, he has what? Granted. Praise God. I can't do it on my own, but here we have the promise that God has done it, will do it in me and through me. 
The verb granted comes after the mention of life and godliness in the Greek, meaning that Peter is stressing for us their permanence. We who are believers have spiritual life and will be godly. That's the promise because all things necessary for it are ours. The verb is is written in such a way to speak of that which has happened in the past. It has been granted, but it's written in in the past tense. It's something that happened to us when we were born again, and it now has present uh, uh, realities for us, and it will continue on into the future. He will never take it away from you. Spiritual life and devoted living to God is what it means to be a Christian. Let me say that again. Spiritual life. And living a life that pleases God is what it means to be a Christian. When our life doesn't match up with that, we need to do some self-evaluation. All of this has been granted to those who believe. Psalm 84, 11 says, The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He's not going to keep any of this away from you. In Ephesians 1, 3, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Have you ever thought about that one? Every single spiritual blessing. I wonder how many there are. Peter, uh, Paul couldn't count them, so he just says every spiritual blessing. Everything that you could ever think of, everything that you could ever need has been granted to us. We've been blessed with it in Christ. Every possible blessing is ours. It would be an unbiblical, it would be unbiblical to view God in any way as withholding a spiritual blessing from us that we desperately need. He will never withhold that which would lead to spiritual life and godliness to him. He's granted everything pertaining to life and godliness. In Philippians 4:19, we were reminded by Paul, he, he makes this little prayer towards the end of the book of Philippians saying, my God shall supply all your need according to his what? His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. How many are the riches of Christ Jesus in glory? How many? They're unfathomable. And then we read in Romans 8, 32, that God the Father, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us what? All things, everything. Now, Paul asks that. It's a rhetorical question, and it's to be understood as meaning this, that if God gave us the very best thing he could possibly give, if he gave us the most precious belonging that he has, his own son, then it stands the reason that he would not withhold anything else from us. John MacArthur put it well when he said this, to possess the Lord Jesus Christ is to have every spiritual resource, all strength, wisdom, comfort, joy, peace, meaning, value, purpose, hope, and fulfillment in life, now and forever, is bound up in him. Christianity is an all-sufficient relationship with an all-sufficient Christ. I love that. Christianity is an all-sufficient relationship with an all-sufficient Christ. Where does that come from? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Beloved, when it comes to life and godliness, Peter desires that his readers know and, and contemplate we have it all. If we fail in our experience of godliness, which we all have, let me tell you something. It's not because you lack the resource. You know, there's some things you just can't do because you don't have the resource. That's not true in your Christianity. We fail because we simply do not access and apply the resources that God has promised to us. I'm sure that you've heard it said that humans only use about 10% of our brains. I don't know how accurate that is. Some of us may not use that much. I don't know. But one thing I am certain, we do not use our brains as we ought. I do know that. However, I'm confident to say that when it comes to living a life of godliness, many of us are guilty of using only about 10% of what God has given to us. We're not accessing everything that God has offered to us. Let me state that again. If you are lacking in spiritual growth, 
if you, th if you know you're coming up short, the problem lies in you for not accessing everything that God has granted you in Christ. By way of application, this means that when we sin, anybody sin in here? Nobody raised their hand. That's a whole different sermon. When we sin, it is not, it is not, it is not because we lack the ability to resist sin. Rather, it is because we have failed to use what God has given us to live a life of godliness. Either 1 Corinthians 10.13 is true or all of scripture is a lie. And I'll go with 1 Corinthians 10.13 being true. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Does that sound like one of those all things pertaining to life and godliness? Beloved, when temptation comes, and oh boy, can they be strong something from our past that, that we had been addicted to before or something just in the present that seems so strong. Yet here is part of the everything God has granted to us for life and godliness. God is sovereign over your temptations. God is in control of your temptations, not allowing them, he says, to be stronger than your faith and by providing you a way of escape by applying what God has already given you in Christ the cross. Beloved, when we are tempted to sin, we must remind ourselves to think about the cross of Christ. Consider his anguish. Sympathize with his pain. Contemplate the depth of his love. Remember all that Christ has accomplished for you. Recall that Christ died for your sins so that you might not live for yourself or live in slavery to sin, but live for his glory. Remember that in Christ there is not only forgiveness for sins committed, but there's also divine power to overcome the temptations you face. Beloved, Christ is our example in this. We dwell upon the pain and the shame Jesus endured, realizing that he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. We need to be reminded that Jesus is our great high priest who is praying for us in every temptation. Did you know that? Every time you're struggling with sin, you should stop and remember that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he's praying for you. We need to recall that Christ came for us because he loves us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So then as we find ourselves tempted, by, tempted to sin, we need to remember that Christ cares for us and he's given to us everything necessary to overcome. Well, we need to move on. We see not only then uh, our, our sufficiency and our source and our standing, but now we notice the supply very quickly. We've not come to the end of the glorious truths contained in this one verse. We note next the means by which God grants everything pertaining to life and godliness. Notice what it is. We've heard it before. You've heard it over and over, but Peter's driving it home. It is through the true knowledge of Christ. Again, verse 3, seeing that his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How do we see this? How do we understand it? How do we learn of it? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. We have as our grand theme of this letter, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We are to know and to grow. How do we grow in our understanding of having everything necessary to live this life for him? It is by means of the knowledge of Christ that we receive everything we need. Now, the, the word knowledge here, again, there's a sense of intimacy. This isn't factoids about Jesus. In fact, we don't know a, a certain factoids. What color was his hair? How long was his hair? Was he tall? Was he short? We don't know those factoids. We don't care about those factoids. That's not the knowledge that we're looking for. We want to know him. 
We want to know his character. We want to know his nature. We want to know his likes and dislikes. If we are to grow in grace, we must grow in those kinds of details, that kind of understanding. And where do you do it? You can only do it as far as I know, unless you can come up with some other way that none of, none of who have gone before us have come up with. I can only know to come to those through the reading and the understanding and the applying of this book, the word of God. He supplied to us the knowledge necessary. And then we come to this last thing, our selection. Notice one of the things Christ accomplished for us. We are to have the knowledge of him who called us. Him who called us. These words speak about the way in which believers have been called to salvation. It is this idea of being summoned to Christ. Peter is fond of this idea of calling. In 1 Peter 1.15, he says, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. In 1 Peter 2.21, Peter says, You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And in 1 Peter 5.10, we read, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, and strengthen you. The idea of calling has to do then with effectual and irresistible call to salvation. That when Jesus finally opens your eyes and says, come, what do you do? You come. And it's not because he's dragging you. You open your eyes and you behold him in his glory. And you behold him in his excellence as we'll see in just a moment. Christ does not draft us into service like soldiers who must come. Willing or not. Christ does not call us uh, to to come into work uh, and work overtime on the weekend, whether we want to or not. Christ does not call us like some tyrant father making the children do things that they ought not to be doing as children. No, Christ draws sinners to himself. Notice how it ends here. By his own glory and excellence. Unless you think those are just too... Interesting terms, that's more than that. Peter uses glory to speak of Jesus being God, his divinity. In both the Old and New Testament, glory always belongs to God alone. And this is the glory of Christ. And so as sinners, uh, as they're being drawn to Christ, they see the glory of Christ. It means we're being presented with the deity of Christ, the fact that he is God. But we see not only his divinity, that's not the only thing that draws us. Notice it says also his excellence, or as it's translated in verse 5, the very same word, moral excellence. When you look to Christ, you see not only that he's God, but you see the moral excellence. Human excellence. This is a man of virtue. This is a man of honor. This is the man that, the, that you would say, this is what I want my children to grow up to be like. This is a, this is a man's man. This is, the, this is the example that we ought to follow. The word moral excellence speaks then of his virtue and his morality as a man. And Peter is essentially saying this. There's no one like Christ. He's given you everything. But more than that, there's no one like him. How do we say that? This is the one who as God has displayed glory so that the apostle John would write, and we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten, as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But he's also the man who has displayed the highest standard of morality the highest standard of virtue, so that Peter would write of him as being the one who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's who I want to be when I grow up. That's what you ought to desire for your young men, for, your, for the young ladies, to be like Christ. Peter stressing the divinity and the humanity of Christ. As God, he is glorious and worthy of praise, so let us praise him. As man, he is morally excellent and the worthiest example to follow, so let us follow him. Him who bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin 
and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we have been healed. Peter's point in our text is to remind his readers that God has graciously given everything needed for spiritual life and godliness, this life committed to please God. He's told us that it all comes through the, through the knowledge of Christ, knowing Christ, knowing of his calling of you, knowing that he wants you to follow him and to follow him as the excellent man. Beloved, if you are entangled by the things of this world, if you are entangled by the desires of your flesh or the schemes of the devil, if you find yourself defeated by sin, then either you do not yet understand the all-sufficient resources that God has freely given to you in Christ, or worse, you have not new life dwelling in you. If it be the latter that you are lacking his new life, then know this, the only thing preventing you from coming to Christ this day is your own hard heart. If you are, co are, are coming to realize that your heart is hardened because of sin, and you fear for your future, knowing what the word of God says comes to those who are apart from Christ, then know this, you are being called to Christ. That if you are seeing that much, you are sensing that general call to come to him. It's time to come. It's time to believe. It's time to stop listening to your voice or the voice of this world or the voice of the devil and hear the call of the Holy Spirit to come and believe. And I pray that God would grant you that faith to believe. The grace and the peace that comes from the knowledge of God, knowledge of Jesus as being God and Savior, and the divine power that he promises to now enable you to live a life that pleases him. Ask the Lord to save you, to change you, to make you his own. And dear believers, those who do know Christ, those of you that know of faith and grace and peace and knowledge, I would say ask of the Lord to reveal to you those areas in which you have not come to fully hear his voice. We are sometimes like our young children or grandchildren, are we not? We practice selective hearing. They hear it, but they refuse to really listen. What areas of your life, believer, you say, I've listened to all these other things, but this one area, I still don't want to hear God. I pray that you will say, God, help me hear your voice. Help me not follow what the world says will bring happiness, for this world is passing away. So let us be renewed in our commitment to trust him more than we did when we first started this day, to the praise of his glory and grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time of study in your word. We've been reminded of some wonderful truths concerning that which Christ has provided for us so that we might live and that we might live rightly for you. Father, it begins with this recognition of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. And so we are thankful for this opportunity to come and gather around the Lord's table that way we might remember who Jesus is and what it is he has done. May you be honored and glorified in this time as we now celebrate this, the Lord's table. May it be to your praise and glory we ask in Jesus' name.